profit in prize money. So did anyone watch? You watched. So good. Was it awesome? I heard that it was awesome. I didn't watch, but I heard that it was awesome. And you, I trust you that it was awesome. Um, and I bet it was, too, because here they had the three greatest Jeopardy! champions of all time all on the stage together. These are really impressive people. Together, they hold all sorts of records for game shows, not just Jeopardy! records, but game show records. In Jeopardy!, uh, one of them, I forget which one, holds the, the longest consecutive winning streak. Uh, they hold, still, they hold the record for the most money won in game show history. Again, not just on Jeopardy, but in game show history. In fact, the guy who didn't win a game in, in, the, uh, in the epic showdown, Brad Rutter is his name, he still owns the record. Even with Ken Jennings winning a million dollars, Brad Rutter, who didn't win a game, still owns the record for the most money won in game show history. So these are pretty impressive people. These are really smart people. I don't know if they're classified as geniuses, but they've got to be really close. These are the kind of people, I think you know the kind of people we're talking about. These are the kind of people who probably hold more in their single brains than all of us hold in our brains together. And because they're so smart now, oh, they're wealthy. Right? And along with their smarts and along with their wealth comes a certain, certain kind of status, right? And along with smarts and wealth and status comes a certain amount of power, comes a certain amount of, of influence. It's always how it works. Like everyone in their community, I'm betting, knows who they are even if it's a large community. I'm guessing they can't even go to the grocery store without some schmuck coming up to them and being like, how was it on Jeopardy? And having a conversation for 20 minutes with a stranger about Jeopardy. So here's the deal. If you live in their community and you want to start something new, like these are the kind of people you want on your team. Are you with me? These are the kind of people who are smart. They're wealthy. They've got power. They've got influence. These are the people you're looking for to be a part of your team. Here's the deal. In Matthew's telling of the Jesus story, we're at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry, and Jesus is in full, full recruitment mode. Like he's starting something new. He's looking for his first disciples. He's putting together his entourage, right? He's putting together a team that will ultimately be given the job of igniting a spiritual movement that will spread over the entire planet and last thousands of years. If you were Jesus putting putting together a crew, who would you want to be a part of that squad? Who would you look for? We'd look for Jeopardy! champions and people like them, right? We'd be like, Hey, Warren Buffett, come follow me. We're going to do this thing together. Steve Jobs, come follow me. We're going to do this thing together. We'd be looking for really smart people. We'd be looking for the best of the best. And that's what we would expect Jesus to do, right? We would expect that because he's from Nazareth, we'd expect him to stay local, We'd expect him because he knows the people there. There's got to be some pretty bright, influential people, even if it's a small town of two to 400 people. 
There's got to be at least one bright one. So you'd expect him to stay there in Nazareth and be like, you know what? You got to come follow me. Or we'd expect him to go to Jerusalem, where we also know he spent some significant time. In fact, Luke tells us that when he was just 12 years old, he was found in Jerusalem, in the temple, hanging with the rabbis. This isn't something 12-year-olds would do. So we know Jesus knows some really influential people, some well-established, influential rabbis in Jerusalem. So we expect him to go there and be like, hey guys, remember when I was 12 and I was telling you what's up, hanging here in my father's house? Know what I'm saying? Come, follow me. We're going to do this thing. Or at the very least, you'd expect him to go to Jerusalem and find some up-and-coming young rabbis who've got some some reputation, like we know that these guys have some promise. We know they're going to be good. And so you expect him to go there and find these up and comers and be like, guys, come follow me. We're going to do this new thing. That would be the smart thing to do, Jesus. Wouldn't it? That's what we would expect because that's what we would do because that's the way the world works. But he doesn't do that. No. Instead, He goes to Capernaum. He doesn't even stay local. This doesn't make sense for Jesus to do this. That's why Matthew says, look, he didn't stay in Nazareth. He left that place. He went to a place he didn't know very well. So he goes to this place that he doesn't know very well, and that's where he gets his first disciples. And on top of that, who does he call? He calls fishermen. Now, no offense to fishermen. If you're a fisherman or a fisherwoman, Um, no offense to you, at least back then, the fishermen weren't known as the cream of the crop. They weren't known as the smartest people in the whole world. Essentially, Jesus chooses the unqualified people. They're not qualified to do what Jesus is asking them to do. He goes to a place that he doesn't even know very well. And he's like, come, follow me to like the leftover people. Now, you might think that's a little harsh. Come on, man, Andrew and Simon and James and John, they can't be that bad. Like, they can't be totally, they're not unqualified. That's kind of rude and harsh, Aaron. No, it's just real. It's just the way it was. It's just saying it like it is. So here's the deal. These were young men, right? In a world where life expectancy was low. So here's the deal with James and John. They were old enough to be well-established in the family business, fishing, but they were also young enough to still have daddy in the boat with them, right? So in first century Palestine, the ideal for the best and the brightest, the best of the best, was for most Hebrew boys not to be embedded in the, he- in the family business or the family trade. It was to be under the teaching of a rabbi. So the brightest boys, the ones who shined in Hebrew school, the ones who memorized Torah and could recite it to you backwards and forwards, they would eventually seek out a rabbi and they would spend the next few years under the teaching of that rabbi. They would take on what's called that rabbi's yoke which is their particular understanding of Torah and the Hebrew scriptures. And they would learn under that rabbi, eventually getting to the point where they become a well-established rabbi of themselves, and they would gain this reputation because they're the best of the best, the cream of the crop, the brightest. And then other young boys would then seek them out and would say, I would like to be your disciple. 
And then the rabbi would test them, and if they passed the test, they would follow that rabbi around, and they would take on his new understanding, which was a little bit different than the other understanding of Torah, and they would start a whole new school of young rabbis coming up, right? So if you were a young man, and you were already embedded in the family business, that meant you were not the cream of the crop. That means you did not have what it takes to run with a rabbi, So Jesus didn't find the best and the brightest. He didn't go search out and find the cream of the crop. No, it seems that Jesus went out on a mission, on purpose, to find the leftovers, to find the the dudes who didn't make it. He called them. He found them. And he said, come, follow me. So Jesus didn't run out and find Jeopardy champions like you and I would. No, no. To start this worldwide movement, he didn't do that. He went out and found regular people. That means that God calls whomever he wants to call. That means that Jesus doesn't show any preferences. Maybe if he does show preferences, it's preferential treatment to the people that we wouldn't show preference to. That means that the sovereign call of God can fall on anyone, anywhere, at any time, even on regular people like you and me, even on the unlikely ones. So here's a question. Why would God do such a thing? To us, we're like, you want to start a movement that's going to take, you know, take root You want to do that? You start with the top. Start with the, why would God do such a thing? First off, who am I to say? Who am I to say? We do have the biblical witness that sort of gives us some clues, some hints. So I'm just going to sort of lean on that, give it a shot, be honest with you. Could be wrong. Maybe. (laughs) it's just the way God rolls. Maybe that's just the way God rolls. Maybe God loves to move to the margins. Maybe God loves to move to the people who are on the edges of society. And maybe God just loves to call them and empower them and give them what it takes. Why would God do such a thing. Maybe it's because the kingdom of God isn't about wealth. It isn't about power. It isn't about status. It isn't about influence. Maybe it's because the kingdom of God works from the bottom up. Maybe it's because the kingdom of God is all about love and self-sacrifice and service of others and all those other things like wealth and power and status and influence. Maybe those things often most often, just plain get in the way. Maybe Jesus chose simple and unaccomplished people to be his followers so that the love of God and the work of the kingdom might be undeniably evident in a world that doesn't want to believe. Maybe that's why. Because when people like those first disciples 
people like you and me, people like the unlikely ones. I mean, who are we? When we're transformed, when we, we become walking, talking, living, breathing examples of the love of God working in the lives of regular people doing some really cool things, right? Here's the deal. Any of the great stuff that happens in this place and through this place, any of the transformation that takes place in this place and through this place in the city of Ames because of us, guess what? We can't take any credit for. It's not on us. Very simply said, it is the power of God working in the lives of some pretty unlikely people. So the story goes on. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting in a I like this part. They were casting a net in the lake because they were fishermen. No duh, Matthew. Thank you for that little line there. Jesus says, Come, follow me. I will make you fishers of people. I'll make you fishers of people. Now, here's the deal. Jesus gets really specific. I will make y'all fishers of people. And I have to be honest with you right now. I always try to be honest, but I'm just going to say it like it is. I don't like this metaphor. (laughs) Nope. Don't like it. Sorry, Jesus. You gave it to us. I still don't like it. I don't like this metaphor. Fishers of people? I don't know about that. I don't, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. In fact, it makes me uncomfortable. There's something about this metaphor that makes me go, it doesn't work for me, Jesus. But anybody else feel like this is uncomfortable? You now have to be fishers of people. Anybody make that? Does any, has anybody in their whole life felt like that makes me a little bit uncomfortable? Okay, I'm the only one. I'll skip this part. <laughs> I don't know what to do now. I got two reasons why this makes me uncomfortable. The first reason is I'm not a fisherman. I don't even like fishing. It's just not who I am. There's something about fishing that makes me go, ew. All right? I remember when I was a kid. I remember when I was a kid, my Uncle Jay, who's sitting back there, would take a couple of times, he took me and my brother and my sister fishing. And I don't know if you have any much memory of this at all, but do you remember me touching a fish or a worm? Probably not. I don't remember touching a fish and a worm. If I did touch a fish, if I did touch a worm, I hated it. It was not good, right? Sometimes my father-in-law takes us fishing, right? I go along because I'm a good son-in-law and my kids like to fish. They're like, grandpa's an expert in fishing. That's really cool. They're learning to like fishing. They don't like to touch fish and worms either, but that's fine. They're learning to like it. I go, but fishing is not my jam. I don't like it. There's something about fishing that feels inherently violent. Like you put a living thing on a hook. You stick a hook into a worm. That makes me feel so bad for that worm. Then you bait the fish. Ha ha, tricked you. Now you're dead. It hooks into the mouth. And when you pull a fish out of the lake or the pond or wherever it is you're fishing, there's a hook in its mouth. Come on, that seems so mean. And sometimes there's blood involved because the fish swallows the hook. And then you got to try to yank the thing out. 
or you just cut it off and let it swim away with a hook in its gut. I don't like it. This doesn't work for me, Jesus. I'm sorry. Not a fisherman. That's the first reason why I don't like fishing. Call me a wimp. Don't care. Here's the other thing. And this has to do with the way that this story is always presented. The fish are these poor lost people, these lost souls swimming in the chaotic world, right? And they're headed to the bad place. It's our job as fishers of people to bait the hook, hook them for Jesus, get them to come to church where they'll realize how bad they are, that they're really sinners to their core. And we teach them to pray a prayer, right? That will get them then into the good place. And there's something about that too that makes me feel like we got to bait them, we got to hook them, we got to trick them, we got to tell them how bad they are. And then like there's something about that that doesn't feel right. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's not a good idea to invite people into this place, into what God is up to, because I think God's doing some pretty amazing things. And I think God's going to do some even more amazing things. And part of what it's going to take is for more and more people to experience the love and grace and mercy of God in order for us to, to do what God really wants us to do as a community and gain this momentum that we really want. So don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't invite people into what God is doing here. I'm just saying this fishing metaphor, Jesus, it doesn't work for me. I don't like that. I'm not tricking people into come here. I want to be honest about what's going on up in this place. So it doesn't work for me. Well, maybe, maybe there's another angle to this. Maybe Jesus is using that specific metaphor because he's talking to fishermen. Right? I'll make you fish for people. Right? In other words, They had specific talents. They had specific skills. They had specific knowledge related to the industry of fishing. So Jesus used language that they would understand and images that would connect with their particular set of skills. They knew what it was like to go fishing. They knew what it was like out there in the dangerous, chaotic waters. So he was telling them, you're going to get this. So he was inviting them not to throw away who God made them to be at heart. They're fishermen and they love it. He wasn't telling them to throw that away. He was inviting them to live fully into who God had made them to be, their authentic selves, and to be that kind of person in service of the divine in the world. Are you with me? Jesus' invitation to the first disciples was specific and particular. It was rooted in the language and culture and vocation that they knew the best. (laughs) What metaphor would make more sense to fishermen than, I will make you fishers of men? I will make you fish for people. They're like, ha ha, we get it. Instantly, they understand. So here's the question. What would Jesus say to you? What would Jesus say to you? To the fishermen, he says, I'll make you fish for people. And they're like, ah, got that. I can be who you made me to be and still do that in service of the divine. 
But what would he say to you? What are your specific talents, skills, and knowledge be? How would Jesus finish that sentence for you? I will make you, because I think that's the most important part of that statement, I will make you. You fill in the blank. I will make. How would Jesus live your life if he were you with your specific talents and skill set and passions? In what particular ways is God calling you to participate in what he's up to in the world? Because you're needed. You're necessary. You've been created in a particular way. You don't have to throw that away and become something you're not. Paul who's the greatest missionary who ever lived, the greatest church planter who ever lived. He wrote several letters to the churches that he planted that made it into this book and we call scripture. He wrote this to a church in Ephesus. He said, we are God's workmanship. We are God's workmanship. And I've said this to you before at another time, but that means masterpiece. It's like an artist created something beautiful, put all kinds of energy and creative power into creating the life that is you. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God created in advance for us to do. So God created you and your life, put all kinds of attention to detail into making you. And then God also was like, there's a lot of good things that this person could do because of the person I created them to be. This is what's possible. And when you find that place, where your passions, your skill set, where you live and work and play all sort of intersect, that's sort of the place for you. Sometimes we call this, sometimes we call this our mission, or sometimes we call it our purpose, or sometimes we call it our calling, the reason we've been put here. When you find that place, you've found those good play, you've found those good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. So as you think about your life, as you look at the world and you're like, I could be passionate about that. Like, I think I could contribute with who I am and how God has made me to be. I think I could make this little corner, this little place of the world, just a little bit better. I think I could contribute. What are you passionate about? How can you give it away? Maybe that's where God is calling you to be. Maybe that's the place where you can better identify and hear the voice of Jesus saying, I will make you. You fill into blank. Just yesterday, I was having a conversation with Renee, who serves on the PTO, because she's awesome. And she was telling me about all sorts of things that were going on in the PTO, right? And I was like, I could solve that. I got real passionate about it. Like, I was like, you could do this, you could do this, you could do this. You can organize it this way, because this is the kind of stuff that I get passionate about. It's one of the reasons why I'm in a church, and I, can, I want to put things together in such a way, right? So I'm passionate about it, and I'm like, you could do this, and you could do this. And after I got done with my speech, she said the perfect thing. You know what she said? Why don't you serve on PTO? Oh, snap. Touche, right? Oh, and right then, right there, I was like, maybe that's the voice of Jesus coming through another human being saying, you got more to give, at least give it some thought. So now I am. So maybe if you don't know where that place is inside of you, maybe if you don't know what you're passionate about, maybe if you don't know what you're really good about, 
Go, go ask some other people. If you're in a pod, talk about it in your pod. If you have a spouse, talk about it with your spouse. If you've got some best friends, talk about it with your best friends. Right? Because there is something for each of us. God is calling. Jesus is consistently calling. The divine call can land on anyone at any time, any place. And it can be specific for you. So what are you good at? What do you love to do? What are you passionate about? Ask if you might hear the voice of Jesus saying, I will make you. I will make you. What? Let's pray. God, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for um, the ways in which you, you just call regular 